Well, I am excited about this series of revisiting the biblical model of pastoral ministry because that's where we find ourselves a congregation with um, Fred and Tim's term as elders um, will be complete the end of October. And so we're in the process now of evaluation, as you're aware, and um, under the direct leadership of our overseer, determining how do we move forward as a congregation? Who will we call? What will that look like? And so I think it's good for us in two ways. One is a congregation to, to once again look at what the biblical model is for pastoral ministry. What are we are asking of people? And then for people in the congregation who may be asked to serve, it's a good opportunity for those of us who serve to once again see what is expected, what is required of us. Last Sunday, we looked at the heart of pastoral ministry, and that has to be the preaching of the Word. This morning, I want us to look at the spirit of pastoral ministry. The spirit of pastoral ministry. We're going to be talking about servant leadership. Open your Bible to John 13. I'm going to use a different text this morning rather than the pastoral epistles, because I want us to look at an example of Jesus. He really is our role model for servant leadership. He is the one who established that vision in Scripture for the leadership that he wanted for his church, that he wanted to be carried forth. And so he had 12 men that he had chosen to be leaders. And over the three years leading up to his death, he modeled for them what it was like to be their leader and to serve them and to equip them. And so I want you to look uh, at John 13 for three specific principles, I think, of leadership. But before I do that, I want to talk to us a little bit this morning about this idea of servant leadership. Now, all of us have had experience with leadership. We've had experiences in the secular world. We've had experiences of leadership in our homes, our fathers, uh, being a father perhaps for some of us. We have, we've had experience in the workplace. Um, we've had experiences in school situations. And you may have had good experiences with leaders, leaders who were nurturing and supportive and served you. And so you may feel very comfortable talking about leadership. There are others, though, who have not had good experiences of leadership. You've been in a situation where leaders have been abusive, where leaders have, have taken advantage of people, where they have used their power for their own interests. And so that might make you suspicious of this whole idea of leadership or suspicious of anybody who you find out is a leader. You may be suspect of them and, and, and decide, well, if they're a leader, then this is someone that I ought to try to take down. We're all familiar with the phrase, I'm sure you've heard it, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Um, that's a Nietzschean phrase. Fred Nietzschean didn't say it, but that's what he taught. He basically taught that power is bad. And uh, if you have it, you become a bad person. Well, what makes 
that line of thinking so compelling is that we all can think of some real-life examples, probably some extreme cases like Adolf Hitler, but even much more closer to us, even in some situations um, that we personally have been involved in, where power has made people bad. And so we've all seen people who go off the rails when they get some power. It can be anything from the, the, the classmate who gets selected to be the, uh, the crossing guard or the patrol or the one who's to monitor in the, in, the, in, the, in the cafeteria. Even in children sometimes you see that. Where someone gets some power, they go off the rail with it. And it's a familiar enough scenario for us to develop this anti-leader uh, mentality. You know, this idea that we really don't need anyone to lead. We just can all do our, our own thing. We all can follow Christ the way that, that we think we could, we should. And, and you stay out of my territory and I'll stay out of yours. And, and somehow we'll just occasionally get together and share notes. That is not the model that Jesus has for the church. That does not require any type of commitment to fellowship. That does not require any decision to submit to authority. And so, this morning, if you've had a bad experience with leadership, specifically church leadership, you can also pretty easily succumb to the place in thinking of possibility of you being in leadership of, that's not a safe place to be. I don't have any interest in being a leader. And I don't really want a leader getting very close to me. Well, Jesus modeled a different way. And we're going to be looking at just in a moment here in John 13. He presented a different model to the 12 that he chose to be leaders. And he didn't present it as an unrealistic ideal. He presented something he called them to. And that's what I want us as a congregation to embrace this morning. This is not like pie in the sky and, well, that's the ideal and, yeah, that's what's perfect. This is, what we are, this is the model we are called to because this church is his church. And so we are called to accept this model. We often refer to this model, and you perhaps heard it referred to, and I have referred to it as servant leadership. And, and that's not necessarily a wrong title, but... Um, I think there, we can misunderstand that as well. Servant leadership is when you have some authority, you acknowledge it, you have some power, you have some ability to influence others, which, by the way, all of us have in different spheres. And we use that authority, that power, that influence for the intentional blessing of others rather than for our own advantage. That's, in essence, a definition of Servant leadership. Rather than using your privilege or your, for your own comfort, you use it for the well-being of others. And that causes sacrifice. Therefore, the idea of servanthood. Now, you may notice that I'm already questioning our basic understanding. That the idea of servant is relegated to the leader. And I'm suggesting this morning that perhaps our paradigm of servant leadership it's not correct. When servant leadership became popular, it was, it was presented primarily as an alternative 
to this heavy-handed, top-down leadership model that we often see in secular society and far too often in the church. Church leaders too often become overly dignified. You know, a church leader has to develop a certain way to walk, you know, and a certain way to talk and, and a certain aura about themselves. Uh, and when that happens, one of the accompanying realities of that is that there's attraction of such specialness that can draw people to the ambition to be a leader, to have that honor and to have that power. And so servant leadership was an attempt at promoting a more humble view of leadership that, that flipped the leader on top model upside down, where the leader, in essence, is on the bottom. But that leader on the bottom view simply took a mistaken view of leadership and tried to fix it. And I don't think we've done a good job with that. The first problem with that is that there's, there's an artificial division between the leader and the followers, the congregation. And wherever there's a division like that, there, there automatically becomes this idea of, of the in-group, those that are in leadership, and the out-group, those that are not in leadership. And though it may seem to be prestigious to be in the in-group, that often has isolated leaders and made them feel isolated and lonely when that division actually occurs. And such division perpetuates the idea that somehow ministry is, is for the elite. It's kind of like the highest place that you can be promoted to rather than um, a place of service. So, yes, there are qualifications for leadership. We find those in the pastoral epistles, and we've talked about those. But just because you can check all the right boxes does not mean that you're called to be a leader. You see, leadership is primarily a calling of God. Paul, very clearly in Ephesians 4, says God calls leaders, and that's affirmed by a body of believers. So leadership is not something that you, that, that, that you set your goal on being, and it's something you're going to seek to accomplish. The truth is that not all mature, faithful believers are called into formal leadership roles. But we tend to make leadership a pinnacle of Christian calling for everyone in the church. And whenever we take one spiritual gift, like leadership, and we elevate it, we exalt it, that then leads to favoritism and automatically some belittling of the other gifts of the body. Even our terminology, servant leader, can unduly put the emphasis on the noun leader. And servant just becomes an adjective, making it seem that like some leaders serve and some leaders don't serve. Now, while in reality, obviously that is true. If a leader is to be told he is supposed to be a servant leader, maybe he's not the right person to be a leader in the first place. The emphasis should be on servanthood. Servants. We all are called to be servants. Some of us are called to lead. When we tell leaders they should serve, 
rather than discovering servants who are called to leave, we may give the impression that leaders are the only ones who are called to serve. In reality, we are all called to serve the church. Each of us are called to serve the church. And by narrowing service to leaders and praising them for it, we are bound to less engagement from the rest of the congregation. All of a sudden, the leaders are the ones who are supposed to be doing everything because they're supposed to be the servant leaders. Servant leadership is not a form of leadership. Leadership is a form of service. Does that make sense? Servant leadership is not a form of leadership. Leadership is a form of service. The Apostle Paul says there are different gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. We find that in 1 Corinthians 12. So some are called to teach, some are called to encourage, some are called to administer, some are called to give, etc. The point is, each of us has a spiritual tool that makes us uniquely able to bless the congregation. And some servants are called to lead. In the church, we need to think more biblically about service and servanthood and live that out. And when we do this, the church will radically demonstrate a kingdom culture that is less about us and more about the king. And that's what we want to be about. Well, Jesus modeled a different way of looking at leadership, and I want us to look at, at three different qualities that we find uh, in John 13. John 13 is a very familiar passage. I'm just going to read these 17 verses, and then I want to go back and, and highlight a few things. You're well familiar with this passage. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper, laid aside his garments, and took a towel and girded himself. After that he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, Ye are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet and taken his garments, and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? You call me Master and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. 
If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. Well, the first quality that we see in the life of Jesus is that a humble leader has a secure identity. A secure identity. Their identity is secure in the love of God. If you don't have a secure identity in the love of God, you cannot be, and you won't be, a humble leader. And you see, this passage is about the end of Jesus' life and ministry. He, he is about to fulfill God's calling in his life, and he realized it's important that the disciples hear about it, what's going to happen. Not so much that they'll understand now, because they didn't understand now, but so that later they could look back and say, so this is what that meant. This is what his death was about. This is what his resurrection was about. And so he gathers his disciples together for a Passover meal, he institutes a symbolic sharing of bread and wine, and then he did what no one else wanted to do. He washed their feet. As you're aware in those days, and it's, it's a little different in our day today, but they walked primarily in the streets as they traveled. And the streets, Maddie, were filthy. They didn't have garbage disposals and septic systems. There was garbage and sometimes even sewage in the streets. And people walked either barefooted or with open-toed sandals. You can imagine what feet got like after you'd been traveling. And so it was very common when a group of people got together, uh, it was just expected in that culture, just like we would say, excuse me, or open the door for somebody. Whoever was the lowest position in the group automatically had the responsibility to wash people's feet. Well, guess what? That evening, they had gathered for dinner. They didn't sit around a table with their feet under the table. They lounged around a table where your feet were out towards someone else's body, face. <laughs> okay? And guess what? No one washed feet. It wasn't that there wasn't a basin there. It wasn't that there wasn't water there. It wasn't that there wasn't a towel there. That's not my job. I remember that evening on the way there, they even had the discussion among themselves, not who was the lowest, who should wash feet, but actually who was the greatest. Sound familiar? So... Jesus decided to show the disciples what he came to earth to do and what the cross means, what the whole mission of his ministry was about. And in this act, he wanted to show them a new way of operating in the Christian world. They were well familiar with the secular world. They were well familiar with the Romans and, being, and serving someone that was in authority. But in this act, he drew attention to himself. First of all, he put his garment aside. He, in essence, a, appeared as a servant. He took the towel 
and girded himself. And then he went to each disciple and washed their feet. And he said to them then, do you know what I just did? Obviously, he wasn't saying, do you know I washed your feet? Aren't your feet cleaner than they were? No, he's saying, do you see the significance in who washed your feet this evening? I, as your leader and Lord, served you. And this is the pattern that I want you to repeat in different ways as you serve the church. You see, this is not just about feet washing. It's about service. In different ways that we serve one another. There are various ways that we can wash one another's feet. In essence, Jesus is saying, I want this pattern to define how the church relates to the world. And how the church relates to the church. And how leaders relate to members of the church. Which is... They take the privilege and the power of their calling, of their gifting, but they use it to serve others. They use it to make others flourish. Now, Jesus could not have done that, and he could not have exercised that humble leadership if he did not have a secure identity and the love of his Father. Look with me at verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, that he was come from God and he went to God. That was his identity. He got his selfhood from God. He got his existence from God. He got his meaning from God. He got his love from God. Now, you and I do not, as followers of Christ, we do not share his divinity. But we do partake in the same life. We are God's sons and daughters. We are secure in that identity. That's one of the benefits when you come to Christ and accept Him. One of the benefits beside forgiveness of your sins and relationship with God and the gift of eternal life, one of the real benefits is you, are, you have a security in your identity. You are no longer a nobody. You are a somebody. You're a child of God. You're a member of his family. Jesus does not hesitate to call you his brother. And we can be secure in that identity. And we can't serve humbly unless we're secure in that identity. Well, Judas is mentioned in verse 2. Judas did not have a secure identity. Judas was not secure in the love of God in Christ Jesus. Otherwise, he would not have felt the need, he would not have felt the compulsion to sell his access to Jesus for money so then he could get whatever he needed for his identity. And we see in Judas what some of us have experienced, a leader taking the benefits of leadership and spending it on themselves. That's what Judas did. So a leader must be secure in their identity. Their identity in Christ. Well, second characteristic, humble leaders are honest about their power. They're honest about their power. Notice Jesus is honest about his power. 
he goes about and, and he's resisted by Peter. You see, if any of the other disciples had tried to do what Jesus did in the manner he did, the others would have shut him down. And Peter tried to shut Jesus down, didn't he? I don't know if Peter was the first one Jesus went to. The scripture doesn't say. But Peter resists his power. You're not going to wash my feet. Never happened. And Jesus used his power not to one-up Peter, not to put Peter down, but to check Peter so that he could still fulfill his role, his calling with his disciples. Notice Peter, Jesus says to them, you call me Master and Lord, verse 13, and you say, well, for so I am. Jesus doesn't say, hey, you know, just call me bro, you know. Just call me Jesus. We're just on a first name basis here. No, he acknowledged that it's right for you to acknowledge me as your leader. You, you see, he was honest about the calling, the position, the power that he had. And it's important for leaders to be honest about it. Don't act like you're just one of the group. You are in a sense, but you do have influence. You do have authority. You do have power. And we must be honest about that. You see, we can do a lot of damage when we're not honest about the power we have. You, you ever been in a classroom and uh, you don't like the teacher and, and you realize there's ways you can undermine that teacher. Make that teacher really look stupid. It's kind of fun, isn't it? You ever been in a committee meeting and things aren't quite going the way you'd like them to go? And you have a way to shut that down? You got power people don't know you have. You can sabotage that whole thing. See, that's when we're not honest and responsible with the power that we have. A humble leader must be honest about their power. Well, humble leaders must be secure in their identity. It's not about my popularity. I'm secure in my identity with God. They also must be honest about the power that they have and realize the responsibility of that power and seek to use it to flourish others and not themselves. Well, the last thing that a humble leader must have is they must have a vision that's higher than their own survival. You see, Judas didn't have that. What was Judas' vision of the power he had as a disciple? Was it about others? No. Judas realized he had power because he was a disciple. And he used that power to go to the chief priests and use that power to benefit himself. That's what Judas did. His vision was just about Judas. His vision wasn't about the poor. His vision wasn't about the lost. 
His vision was not the vision of his Lord. His vision was about Judas. And sadly, there are those who can be so talented and so gifted and have the back background and have the knowledge to be called into leadership who do not have a vision greater than their own survival to the detriment of the body of Christ. We have all seen that in our day and time. Leaders who sought to build an empire about themselves. And the body of Christ suffered greatly because of that. Humble leaders have a vision higher than their own survival. Their vision is for the church and to see other people flourish rather than their own profit. This is the spirit of pastoral ministry, according to the Bible. So again, it's not just servant leadership. We sometimes think of, well, we call leaders because we need someone to serve the rest of us. I say again, servant leadership is not a type of leadership. Leadership is a type of service. We must not forget that. As a congregation, we must understand that we are all called to use the gifts. Each of us has the Spirit of God, and He has given us gifts, not for our own use and benefit, but to benefit the whole. We are all called to be servants. And some of the servants are called to lead. That's the biblical model. That's what I want us to embrace the congregation. That's the standard I want us to hold our leaders to. That's what I want us to think of when we're choosing leaders. It's not about who has the best education. It's not the one who has the most experience necessarily. It's not the one... Yes, there are some minimum qualifications to me to be met, but just because you can check those boxes does not mean that you're called to be a leader. Leaders are first of all servants, but all of us are servants. And in that pool of servants, some are called to lead. And those leaders must be secure in their identity with God. Their identity is not that they are now an elder or a pastor or a deacon or, or a minister. That's not their identity. If that is where they find their identity, they will seek to do things to protect that identity. Their identity must be in Christ. And secondly, they must be honest about their power. They must acknowledge the power and the influence they have and hold it carefully. Not seeking to be dishonest about it. Well, I don't have any influence. And then using that to sabotage other situations. And leaders aren't the only ones that do that. Anyone in a group can do that. And then thirdly, as I said, they must have a vision greater than their own survival. A vision to see other people flourish. A vision to see the church flourish. 
It's not about their legacy. Yes, they will leave a legacy. But it's not about protecting that. It's about seeing that others flourish. Let's pray. Father, we need your blessing and direction as we as a congregation look for future leadership. We acknowledge that this is your church, that you are the head of this body. And Father, we desire all of us to serve you with the gifts that you have given to us. And Father, we acknowledge that you have chosen for there to be leaders in a body of believers. And so as we wait before you these next couple of weeks, as we seek your face, we pray for those who you are preparing to call. We pray that they will be individuals that are secure in their identity with you. They're individuals who understand power and are honest about it and seek to use it to help others flourish. They're individuals who have a vision greater than their own legacy, their own reputation, a vision for the blessing of others. Father, we need your Spirit's leading in this process. And I pray that all of us again this morning will embrace the gifting that you have given to us. That we'd be willing to use it to serve the body. That we'd make ourselves available to serve as you would call. This we ask in the name of Christ.